0: Welcome to the podcast, On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Before we get started, I want to let you know that On Becoming now has a presence on Twitter at On Becoming Pod and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. The show email is onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to engaging with you on Twitter and Instagram as well as hearing from you by way of email. As far back as I can remember, the evangelical world has seen itself as under threat. You might ask, what exactly constituted the threat to evangelicalism? That's a really good question. Alas, I don't have anything like a clear answer to that, but here are two possible answers. One, evangelicals saw themselves as disrespected, dist we might say, by society in general and the media in particular. Remember, of course, that evangelicals are basically fundamentalists with a name change. We've already mentioned the usual characterization of fundamentalists as no fun, all damn, and no mental. That was certainly part of the way in which fundamentalists felt that they were perceived, and that feeling was mm, probably accurate. Although explicitly Christian characters are not common in films and television, when they did appear, it was often in a bad light. If you're thinking, well, give me an example. Well, here's one. In fact, two. The incredibly popular, long-running, and continually syndicated TV series M.A.S.H. had a character named Frank Burns. Frank claims to be a pious Christian, but he's virtually everything you'd never want to be. He's not just somewhat of a hypocrite, he's a hypocrite on steroids. For instance, he's always talking about army regulations to others, but he doesn't follow them himself. He claims to be a man of God, but his entire demeanor is slimy and dishonest. Although he's constantly criticizing Hawkeye Pierce, Pierce turns out to be the person who has a deep sense of morality and concern for the badly wounded patients that come their way. You see the contrast here? The person who always is talking about being a good person turns out to be a very bad person, whereas the person who has little regard for the rules and precious little respect for authority turns out to be the person who deeply cares about his patients. Further, Frank is a poor surgeon whose mistakes are often corrected by the other surgeons. At one point, Frank falsely blames an orderly for the death of one of his patients. Then there's the aspect that even though Frank is married with three children back home, he has an affair that lasts for four seasons of the television series. When his wife finds out, he talks to her on the phone and claims that the affair was nothing. And it turns out that Frank has had had multiple affairs. The other example from MASH is Father Mulcahy. Father Mulcahy is a truly decent person who is much loved by the people in the MASH unit. Yet the problem with his character is that he is naive to the point of being almost stupid. Those are the two characters in the TV series who are religious. A hypocrite and a sweet, naive priest. Neither, of course, are explicitly identified as evangelical. It wouldn't take too much imagination to think that Frank Burns is either something like that or close to it. Second... Evangelicals have a fraught relationship with the government. Although they claim to be in favor of law and order, they view the government with suspicion. Why? Because the government is liberal, just like the media. With that point in mind, you might be able to better appreciate how the focus on the family guy, James Dobson, was able to portray Obama as out to destroy the church, and successfully convince many evangelicals that Obama was anti-religious. There's also, of course, the racial aspect to that, though I can't count the number of evangelicals I've heard criticize Obama and then confidently assert that no, they're not racist. Was it because Obama was black that he couldn't be recognized by supposedly fellow Christians as also a Christian, rather than a closet Muslim? who wasn't a legitimate American citizen? Alas, race seems to be the most obvious reason. In any case, the dislike, distrust of the government by evangelicals goes much deeper. Evangelicals are constantly worried that the government might interfere with their churches, colleges, and other institutions. I can't tell you how often I've heard that evangelical institutions might get shut down by the government because they refuse to hire anyone from the LGBTQ plus community. Actually, it depends on the institution. Some evangelical institutions will allow you to be gay as long as you never act on that. It's a weird form of imposed celibacy, something we'll talk about later. And evangelicals have some reasons for being afraid of the government. If you've ever heard of Bob Jones University, you probably already know that they lost their tax-exempt status back in 1976 because, among other things, they do not permit dating between students of different races. Just to be clear, I'm not making that up. Evangelicals have long asserted that the United States of America has always been a Christian nation. This is, of course, Simply false. Usually the way such a view is attacked is by pointing out that many of the drafters of the Constitution were deists. And that's certainly true. But very few people seem to know that early on in the history of the U.S., the vast majority of the population was not religious. At least not in the sense of being connected to a church or denomination. In their book, The Churching of America, 1776-2005, Roger Fink and Rodney Stark use statistical analysis to determine just how religious the U.S. has been over time. They use the marker of church affiliation to determine just how Christian the U.S. has been. Want to try and guess what percentage of the U.S. population was connected to a religious group in 1776? What are you thinking? 95%? 80%? How about 17%? That's what they calculate. In the second half of the 19th century, the number moved up to about 45%. By 1952, the number had reached 59%. Again, they're going on the basis of church affiliation, not just some kind of vague sense of being religious. In one sense, this shouldn't be surprising. If you've ever heard of the Great Awakening of the 18th century and the Second Awakening of the 19th century, you might wonder to yourself, how could so many thousands of people have become Christians if they were already Christians? To be exact, 13 September 2022. I invite you to look it up for yourself. It's titled, Modeling the Future of Religion in America. As the title suggests, the report is focused on the United States. You probably already know that the U.S. is unusual in that it has historically been a very religious country. That makes it an outlier in the West, though the report makes it clear that the Christian identity of the U.S. is waning. The Pew report starts out with this sentence, Only a few decades ago, a Christian identity was so common among Americans that it could almost be taken for granted. While that's an interesting statement, note just how vague it is. Like most other countries in the Western world, Christianity has been the principal religion in the U.S., what we might call the default religion, the one that if a pollster asks, you're most likely to affirm. It's not like there's some close call between Christianity and, say, uh, Buddhism in the U.S. But having Christianity as part of a country's history is not quite the same as being Christian. One of the things that I find remarkable in the report is that they use the word religion over and over, but the word is never defined. It's never explained. What does it mean to be Christian? Is following Jesus enough? Do you need to be affiliated with the specific branch of Christendom? How much and how deeply do you need to believe in Christian doctrine to count as Christian? Or if you want a more straightforward question, does Frank Burns count as a Christian? In terms of his profession of allegiance, I think the answer has to be yes. In terms of how he lives, unfortunately I think the answer is no. These questions are incredibly difficult to answer, even though it might at least at first seem obvious. As we'll come to see in the upcoming podcast, how one answers these questions will greatly determine who gets to count as a Christian. As a kind of foreshadowing of where we're going to be going, I will be arguing that a very significant percentage of those who claim to be Christian turn out to be something else. And conversely, that many people who would never identify as Christian are actually much more Christian than many Christians. With that huge caveat in mind, let's turn to the Pew Research. They begin by stating that in the early 1990s, approximately, and here I'm quoting, 90% of U.S. adults identified as Christians. Given what I've just said, you should probably already realize that that number should be taken with a grain of salt. But the main theme of the research is the decline of Christianity in the United States since the 1990s. What's interesting about the report is that the researchers aren't saying that Americans have switched to other religions. Instead, people who are switching are switching to, and here again I'm quoting, atheist, agnostic, or none of the above. But it's also a story about how much switching is taking place at the moment. Their focus is quite rightly on the beliefs of those between the ages 15 to 29. For many people, it's during that time in their lives that they figure who they are, and what they believe. I've already spoken about my experience with college students. It's often the case that going to college forces one to come to terms with a number of big questions, one of which has to do with religion. For students who've been raised in religious households, college tends to be the time in which people sort out their beliefs, their priorities, and their goals. Probably the most important statement in the research by the Pew Center is the following. In other words, a steadily shrinking share of young adults who were raised Christian in childhood have retained their religious identity in adulthood over the past 30 years. At the same time, having no religious affiliation has become stickier a declining percentage of people raised without a religion have converted to or taken on a religion later in life. If you're thinking, that's a pretty convoluted statement, you're right. Having applied for and received various grants over the years, I've come to realize that this kind of writing is what granting agencies like. So let's try to put this in English. Since the 1990s, more and more people have been leaving the religious traditions of their parents. Of course, going off to college and leaving various things behind is all part of the process of becoming an adult. College students have been leaving religion behind for, well, probably as long as there have been college students. But the Pew folks are saying that in the past few decades, far more young people have been leaving religion behind than was previously the case. Now, how does that work out in terms of numbers? The Pew report invokes the research of the General Social Survey, what they call the GSS. It was only beginning in 1972, not that long ago, 50 years ago, that the GSS first asked people, what is your religious preference? Who comes up with these questions? Religious preference? I think of preference when someone asks me, how would you like your steak cooked, not religion? Note that the question doesn't say anything about commitment to one's religious preference. Anyway, back in 1972, the number who preferred Christianity was 90%. And 5% of the respondents said that they had no religious affiliation. Now, I'm not quite sure when the term nuns was first used, and so far I've not been able to find anything definitive regarding the advent of the term. However, the meaning should be clear enough. It's none, as in none of the above. As the podcast develops, we'll come to see that a major problem is what checking the box none of the above actually means. To put that point a bit more pointedly, If I say I'm not a Methodist or Roman Catholic or Southern Baptist, that only says what I'm not. It doesn't say anything about what I am. But of course, much depends on which question is asked. If one asks, do you like Obamacare? Turns out you get one response. But if you ask people whether they like the changes to health care that came about from the Affordable Care Act, you get a different answer. Part of this has to do with the fact that many people think that these are two different things, when the reality is, of course, that they're one and the same. In terms of religion, a major problem in asking people about religion is that everyone assumes that they already know what this is, when the reality is that most people have only the vaguest idea of what makes something a religion. I'd wager a substantial amount of money that most people assume that religion equals belief in God or belief in a set of pantheon or of gods or something like that. But the reality is that there are, of course, many non-theistic religions. That is to say, religions that have nothing to do with belief in a god or gods. So religion, whatever else it is, is not equivalent to believing in God. If you're thinking, Well, that's not a very important point. The reality is that it's a very important point. If people decide to reject something, it's probably helpful for them to know at least something about what it is they're rejecting. It's one thing to reject something you've investigated and you've decided, yeah, this is no good. It's another thing to reject something that you simply don't understand. The Pew report has two emphases, switching and transmission. Let's consider switching first. According to the report, and now I'm quoting, switching gained momentum in the 1990s. Pew makes that statement on the basis of an increase of young people claiming not to have any religious affiliation. For example, From 1972 to 1993, the percentage of religious non-affiliation increased from 5% to 9%. But then, between 1993 and 1996, in other words, just three years, the figure crept up to 12% from 9%. And then only two years later, it moved up to 14%. At this point, the number of non-affiliated stands at 29%. Pew makes the point that uses a different question. What is your present religion, if any? This is, I think, a much better way to formulate the question. However, the problem still persists as to the extent to which one is affiliated with religion. Say you were brought up Methodist. Do you still identify as Methodist? If so, does that mean you go to a Methodist church and you believe whatever it is that Methodists believe? And if you do still believe the kinds of things Methodists believe, do you believe in a way that affects how you live your life? Or does that belief just end up being something like uh, a kind of mental commitment? Pollsters often use the metric of attending church to determine religious affiliation. But it should be clear that this is problematic in both directions. On the one hand, perhaps you attend the Methodist Church because, well, that's where your friends hang out. You might well still attend the church despite the fact that your beliefs have changed over time. This is a very common phenomenon. In other words, you identify with a specific community of the people of your church, but not because you believe everything for which they stand. Many people attend churches or temples because, well, that's what they've always done. Usually, anything like a clear break from a religion comes at the point when, say, virtually none of your, say, previous Methodist beliefs are still intact. Thus, simply because someone attends a Methodist church is nothing like sufficient evidence that such a person still believes what Methodists believe. On the other hand, you might live somewhere that doesn't have a Methodist church. Or a Methodist church that, for whatever reason, you don't want to attend. Maybe the people aren't very friendly, don't like the pastor, whatever. Are you thereby not a Methodist? So not attending church may not be sufficient reason to say that you're not a Methodist, even though, of course, I can well imagine Methodists saying something like, you know, you really should go to church. Then there's the whole question of why fewer people today self-identify as religious. There are a lot of theories about this. The reason most frequently cited by scholars is what the Pew Report labels Existential security. Uh, Let's try and put that in plain English. Those who hold this theory contend that when life is reasonably good, that is to say you're not struggling to feed, clothe, and house yourself, you're less likely to be religious. Now, the problem with this is that this assumes that religion is chosen because there's something wrong with your life. The Pew report describes such people as having, and here again I'm quoting, less need for religion to cope with insecurity. Now interestingly enough, the way the Pew folks bring this up makes it clear that they don't necessarily endorse such a theory. One obvious reason is that many people who are religious aren't necessarily religious because there's something like a void in their lives that only religion can fill. If we go back to the previous example of the Methodist, it becomes clear that such a person may simply have found a community at the local Methodist church. It's entirely possible to imagine that that same person could have found a community by joining a bowling league, getting involved in the Rotary Club, or some other kind of thing. Let me just say that I think that the existential theory, at least as it's put forward here, is deeply questionable, though I'm going to later on in the podcast right at the end provide my own existential theory that's a bit different. Another theory about religious non-affiliation is that it is a result, and here I quote, that in the U.S. an association of Christianity with conservative politics has driven many liberals away from the faith. Well, I have questions about using the term liberal, It's clear that younger generations are considerably more, if you want to use that term, liberal, if we mean something like open-minded or progressive, than previous generations on quite a number of things. Not just regarding climate change or LGBTQ plus inclusion, but many other things. A further suggestion offered by Pew is that young people are leaving the faith due to various factors such as, again I'm quoting, declining trust in religious institutions, clergy scandals, rising rates of religious intermarriage, smaller families, and so on. I would say that many of us have lost trust not only in religious institutions, but many institutions in general. An example here might be the Boy Scouts. That's an organization that many people were part of, uh, and by the way, It's probably worth mentioning that many Boy Scout troops meet, or at least used to meet, in churches. But the Boy Scouts now seem discredited by the ever-emerging evidence of sexual and physical abuse of boys by Scout leaders. For a long time, Evangelicals thought it was those Roman Catholic priests that were abusing kids. Such scandals have clearly been responsible for many people leaving the Catholic Church. But now it's become clear that many kinds of abuse are and have been rampant in evangelical churches. One thing, though, that the Pew Report doesn't mention is something like the following. I think many people have given up on religion, which includes but also goes beyond attending church, because they don't find it meaningful. What I mean by that is simply that many people, particularly young people, don't think Christianity has much to offer them. They could be wrong, of course. But if you think religious services just don't do anything for you, you're probably not going to attend them. We can connect this point with the previous one by pointing out that many people find that religious institutions have nothing to offer, that they find helpful or meaningful, And then you add in the whole problem of various institutions, particularly churches, seeming now so deeply hypocritical. If you add in the fact that many religious institutions are, alas, deeply racist, sexist, and homophobic, it shouldn't be difficult to see why young people find them backward and more important, simply irrelevant to our time. Such an interpretation is, I think, well supported by the Pew Research data. The report states that, and here I'm quoting, religious disaffiliation in the US is being fueled by switching patterns that started snowballing, that's their term, from generation to generation in the 1990s. The core population of nuns has an increasingly sticky identity as it rolls forward. Here's what they're trying to say. When you have the sense, real or imagined, that you're an outlier in rejecting religion, you might well feel alone, and perhaps hope to stay in the closet. However, the more people are willing to admit that they aren't religious, the more other people will feel comfortable coming out as non-religious. Put another way, it wasn't all that long ago that people who identified as atheists were afraid to say that publicly. It's still close to a truism that one can't run for public office as an atheist in most parts of the United States, though the continuing popularity of Bernie Sanders puts that into question. Sanders is a Jewish atheist. Further, I was just reading an article on the rise of atheist organizations that provides something like a community or a support group for those who identify as atheist. The article included a quote from a dentist who didn't want to be identified as an atheist publicly because he worried that people might not want to have an atheist poking around in their mouths. Personally, I have zero interest in the religious identity of my dentist. I'm only concerned that he or she is competent as a dentist. But I can think of various people I've known throughout my life who probably wouldn't want to have an atheist as their dentist. Just as an aside, I remember an evangelical couple telling me that they simply didn't have any friends who weren't evangelicals. That was a response to the fact that they knew that I had many friends who weren't evangelicals. But in the couple's defense, let me add that they were sad that they didn't have any non-evangelical friends. Let's turn to the aspect of transmission. The Pew Report says, here again we're quoting, Christianity is the stickier affiliation for older Americans, but among younger adults, the unaffiliated identity has become the stickier one. But otherwise older Americans are much more likely to remain religious, while younger Americans are much more likely to lose their religion. Here's how this works. About 80% of those who are 40 and older and raised Christian are still Christian today. But only 66% of people in their 30s who are raised Christian are still Christians. Now, Another piece of data that's important to note is that 73% of people in their 30s who were raised without any particular religion are still not religious. That's 7% higher than those who were raised Christian. This is what Pew means by stickiness. Those raised Christians are less likely today to still be Christian, and those raised without religion are more likely to still be non-religious. As you could probably imagine, the data for millennials is incomplete. Many of them have not yet turned 30. Yet preliminary research indicates that those in their 20s are disaffiliating from religion in even greater numbers than those in their 30s. But if you're thinking that this report is just about young people, the Pew folks also discovered that since the 1990s, switching from a religious to a non-religious identity grew among those who were older than 30. As we've already noted, it's pretty common for people in their teens and 20s to move to different positions, whether religiously, politically, or some other sort of thing, since those are very formative years. But the Pew Research indicates that those born in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s have been switching to a non-religious identity at a much faster pace than with the previous generations. The Pew Report speculates that the same dynamic operating in younger people has now become more common among older people. Here's what they say. Once Christians begin to lose their overwhelming majority, people of all ages who had ties to Christianity but didn't attend church, pray often, or see religion as an important part of their lives may have begun to identify as unaffiliated in larger numbers. As nuns grew in size and visibility, being unaffiliated may have become more socially acceptable in some circles, opening the floodgates to further disaffiliation. The pattern here is clear enough. In the old days, the fact that an overwhelming majority of people claimed to be Christian was, in effect, a kind of deterrent to those thinking of switching. What will the neighbors think? Would have probably been a standard question. If you want a different example, consider divorce. Once upon a time, divorce was rather unusual and often resulted in one being shunned by other people. Now divorce has become so common, even in evangelical circles, that the stigma has almost gone away Well, as I say, almost. That same situation is now the case with religion. During the decades since the 1990s, Pew estimates that 31% of those aged between 15 and 29 who were raised Christian left Christianity behind. In contrast, only 7% of those aged 30 and above disaffiliated. But that figure of 7% is still higher than in the past. So, where are things headed for Christianity in the U.S.? Pew provides four different scenarios. In the first scenario, the rate of switching would remain exactly the same. That would result in Christianity remaining the most common religion in the U.S., but no longer the majority religion by 2060. The second scenario would be that the disaffiliation rate would not remain the same, but actually increase over time. Were that to happen, the nuns would become the majority by 2070 at 48%, whereas only 39% of the population would still be Christian. Put it another way, the acceleration of disaffiliation experienced in the past three decades would continue whereas the rate of people switching to Christianity would drop considerably. Yet this scenario envisions some kind of pushback from the Christian community. You might well say, the Christian community is already pushing back on disaffiliation. And you'd be right. However, if we take the example of evangelicals who continue to complain that their religious liberty is being taken away, it should be clear that such intervention is probably only going to increase disaffiliation, not decrease it. The third scenario assumes that there is no Christian pushback, and thus the rate of switching only increases. The result would be that the nuns would stand at 52% by 2070 and Christians at 35%. And then the final or fourth scenario is really just a kind of what-if scenario, because it's a scenario in which all switching would immediately stop. As the Pew folks admit, that's probably not going to happen. The Pew report labels the first scenario as conservative, and the reason for that is because it assumes that the rate of switching would remain the same. Of course, what we've already seen is the rate of switching has dramatically increased in the past few decades. That's why they put forth the second scenario. While the rate of disaffiliation could suddenly become a constant, that's highly unlikely given that the pattern has been that increasing disaffiliation only leads to more disaffiliation. Now, I should mention here, um, you may already know that the Pew Research Center is funded by the Pew family. Uh, That is to say, the children of the founder of Sun Oil Company, and it's located in Philadelphia. That explains the focus on the U.S. But it's interesting the report does make reference to the U.K. and to the Netherlands. Already by 2009, the nuns were the largest group in the U.K., and their numbers have only increased. In the Netherlands, switching from Christianity became common in the 1970s, with the result that only 47% of the population now identifies as Christian. Everything on which I've commented so far has come from the Pew Report. But National Public Radio interviewed the leader of the research project, Stephanie Kramer, on the 15th of September of 2022, and she has some interesting things to say. She states that men are slightly more likely than women to disaffiliate, and that those who live in the western part of the U.S. are more likely to disaffiliate than those who live in the south. The part about women being more likely to continue to identify as Christian than men is not really all that surprising. It's also no surprise that those in the South are less likely to disaffiliate than those in the West. The southern part of the U.S. has long been called the Bible Belt. If it's true that knowing other people who've disaffiliated is more likely to make one disaffiliate oneself then it's easy to see that those in the South have had fewer, shall we say, role models for disaffiliation. However, what struck me in particular was a comment she made about the nuns. To quote her, most of the nuns do believe in some kind of higher power or spiritual force. Why that's particularly interesting is that one might expect that those who disaffiliate have largely bought into a common, though certainly not universal, assumption that often goes with modern science, namely the assumption that matter is all there is. In future podcasts, I will have quite a bit to say about this assumption both because I think that only a few people really believe that the world we inhabit is just a meaningless material blob, and also because I think we need to think seriously about the very distinction between the physical and spiritual, or what we might call body and mind. But a later part of the interview gets at what I think is really the crux of the issue. The interviewer, Sarah McCammon, says that she has a short bit of tape she'd like to play. It's from a woman named Eliza Campbell, who left the Church of the Latter-day Saints, which was included under the category Christianity for the Pew study, though I should probably point out that most Christians don't really recognize any form of Mormonism as being part of Christianity. Here's what Eliza said. And for me, especially when I started to come out as queer, it became impossible for me to reconcile this church that basically was admitting that it wanted me and other queer children dead. It just, I sort of realized that I had to, you know, choose myself ultimately and choose my well-being. That's a very powerful statement. She felt she needed to leave a church that wanted her dead. I've already mentioned my own queerness, so I deeply understand what it's like to be part of a religious community that doesn't want you. Eliza's point was that her own community was unwilling to accept her for who she is Instead, it simply wanted her to cease existing. Earlier, I mentioned the idea of existential security as a reason for why people are less interested in religion today. That idea, if you remember, was that people who find themselves to be doing economically okay, and basically the life is going alright, might not feel any kind of need to be part of a religion. While I have serious questions as to what extent that plays a role in disaffiliation, I have no question that a different sort of existential concern is a crucial reason for disaffiliation. For someone like myself, why would I want to be part of the evangelical world, which basically wanted me dead and only recently has decided that I can stay alive if I stay asexual. Why would anyone choose such an affiliation? I can readily understand that those who find themselves already part of a community and try to remain within while being queer, that's me. But as Eliza says, her choice was being part of the community that wanted her dead or else being able to affirm her own existence. It doesn't get any more existential than that. Wanting you dead is literally wanting you not to exist. The interviewer goes on to ask, is this common, people leaving Christianity because they disagree with specific teachings? But I think that question kind of misses something here. It avoids the true existential situation faced by all of us who've tried to remain in our communities that want us dead because we're queer. It's not like Eliza is talking about something like, uh, I don't know, the divinity of Christ or the reliability of the Bible or some other somewhat detached theological view. She's talking about her right to exist, I think the real existential problem is that many Christian communities are patriarchal, misogynistic, racist, homophobic, and generally unwelcome to anyone who isn't exactly the same. That is the existential problem. And so ultimately many, if not most, forms of Christianity want you, but only on their own terms. Well, those of us who are queer realize that we cannot survive in such a community. Fortunately, many other people have come to realize that they don't want to be part of such a community. One might speak positively of the Episcopal Church as a place where queer people are welcome. With some caveats, I would certainly say that I have been truly welcomed by many Episcopal communities. But one must also not forget that the Mother Church, the Church of England, still treats queer people like me as aberrations. I have no desire to be part of such a community. And so when all is said and done, I think the major reason for disaffiliation is that younger people simply don't want to be part of a community that marginalizes queer people, women, and people of color. The problem is, I think, truly existential. But I think all of this is part of a much larger, much more complex situation. We all assume we know what religion is, but do we? I invite you to join me for the next podcast in which I'll ask you to suspend all of your assumptions about what religion is and be willing to ask the very basic question, what is religion? Before I go, let me remind you that On Becoming is now on Twitter at On Becoming Pod, and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. The show email is Podcast at gmail.com. I am very grateful to those of you who've already contacted me about the podcast and I've greatly appreciated your comments. But it would be grand to hear from more of you. Feel free to send me your questions and comments as well as tell me what you'd like to hear more of in the podcast. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson and you've been listening to on becoming